Coming on the show right now is Will Hayes, who is the CEO of LucidWorks. Uh, LucidWorks does, I guess, what's called intelligent search. It makes sure that uh, you are, as the user comes to your website, they have a good experience, they're connected. Think of it like Amazon, but only smarter. So other businesses that are looking to make sure that they improve the customer experience, that's what he's leading in. You're gonna, uh, you're gonna hear about his experience. You're gonna hear how he got there. He, he never uh, actually finished college but he's one of the few black CEOs that are leading the way in tech. And he is disrupting the narratives and constructs out there. He is working hard. Uh, I know you're gonna enjoy his story. I hope you learn more about his company, LucidWorks. But uh, without any further ado. If you believe we can change the narrative, if you believe we can change our communities, if you believe we can change the outcomes, then we can change the world. I'm Rob Richardson. Welcome to Disruption Now. Will Hayes, uh, CEO of LucidWorks. I appreciate having you on the show. How are you doing today? Doing all right. Really, really great to be here. Good to see you. Yeah, it's good to have you back. You know, we had this beautiful in-person interview that we had and, you know, we don't have that footage, so we're going to have to recreate the best that we can. So I appreciate you allowing us to do this on Disruption Now and really appreciate your story and what you're doing. And I, and I think you're offer a lot to our our, our listeners. Absolutely. No, really excited to be here. I think these times have taught us that we just, we have to adapt to any circumstance. So <laughs> here we are getting another, yeah. getting another take going. So uh, part of what we focus on is disrupting common narratives and constructs. And uh, your story has, it has done that. And I, and I want to just, I want to, I want to take you back to uh, something I read that talked about some of your interactions you've had, you have being in the tech world. We know Unfortunately, uh, a lot of people don't see the connection with people of color in the tech world, particularly black people. Let me be really specific. Absolutely. Uh, in the tech world. So you've had interactions where people either knowingly or not knowingly uh, were, were racist or ignorant or whatever adjective you want to use there. And you've had people mistake you for the assistant, the everything else but the CEO. And their right. face yeah. stops back. And when they say they're CEO, there's a pause look on their face. Talk to people about how to respond to moments like that, because if you're a, uh, a black entrepreneur, those moments are going to happen to you. People are going to make assumptions wrongly. And and uh, how can you pivot from those moments? And how do you advise people as as you know that they're going to go through moments like that, knowing that you at your level of success still go through it? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. And, and I want to, you know, uh, <laughs> I'll be clear that <clears throat> there's no, I think, answer, right, in terms of just, oh, here's how you deal with it, or here's what you have to do, here's the playbook. Um, you know, I think what, what's unfortunate, and, and the way I would classify my experiences is, is it comes around more so as what we would call bias, even unconscious bias in some right. ways. And, and, and in a lot of ways, that can be even more difficult. I think we all, we all more or less know how to deal with just sort of blatant racist people, right? People right. that are just out there in your face. And frankly, I think a lot of us just don't associate in, in those environments. It's harder when, you know, when the bias comes in unconsciously, when it comes from people who don't, you know, consider themselves to have any bias bone in their body. And so, you know, um, and, and put this in the context of, of raising money in particular, but but really with, with a lot of folks, you know, black folks in particular in leadership, um, there's just, we're not, there's not this pre-wired assumption that you're the leader, 
that you're the boss, right? And that shows up in just very subtle but disruptive ways, such as, you know, kind of coming in and, and greeting a, a, a white colleague as if they are, they are your manager, they're your boss, they're the CEO, right? Um, making assumptions about your role and sort of who you are. And so that's frustrating in, in every context. And I think, you know, I've, it's funny, I talked to some black CEOs, we talk about like taking the team out to dinner and just, right. you know, you're doing all the ordering, you're making sure everybody's taken care of it. At the end of the day, like no one's bringing you the check, right? They're bringing it to somebody <laughs> else. And so these are these are all little things, but they, they tend to add up. In the context of fundraising in particular, what was very just unsettling was those little mistakes, the, you know, greeting my, my colleague as the CEO, not necessarily knowing who I am, lead to a discomfort. And that discomfort is permeating throughout the room, throughout the entire meeting. Now, a lot of venture capital investing in particular, because remember, this isn't institutional investing where I can go research on Wall Street and understand. It comes down to like a little bit of a gut feel. I believe in this yeah. team. I believe in this market. And when you get off, you know, out the gate with this severe discomfort and guilt, it can just derail everything. And so when it comes to coping, to your point, and I'm not going to say this as if I'm proud of it, but you know, in the moment when you're building a company, when you're raising money, you were laser focused. There is nothing that is going to get in my way, including adversity, including bias, including racism. So for me, and I don't know if this was a coping mechanism or just a survival mechanism, my only goal in those moments was to diffuse it, to just look, it didn't happen. Let's just, let's just stay right. focused. Because the moment <laughs> yeah. they stay in that moment, they start dwelling, they start getting uncomfortable, they start getting right. distracted. They're not hearing what I'm here to, to, to present, what I'm here to do. And so that's a severe disadvantage. And that, if anything, and why I tell this story is I want people to be aware that that one little mix-up of you're just not waiting to figure out who the CEO is completely derails the entire process. Yeah. We can change that. It's simple. You know, We can talk about institutional racism. These are much bigger problems. This is a simple problem that people can fix and level the playing field. Yeah. And, and so it, it's, it's sort of incumbent on you because to figure out a way to get people comfortable and move them past that moment. And so like I've, I've, you found yourself figuring out how to make a joke out of it, not take it personally, because it, because it, it actually is not personal. I tell people this all the time, even when even even when someone is racist, biased, whatever, it has to do with their own experience. It never has anything to do with you. They don't know you. <laughs> yeah, they don't know you. It's yeah. something, you know, it's like they don't know you. And and the fact that they have these beliefs, like you said, most people are not bad. Uh, but the fact is that I do believe those microaggressions, uh, the indifference maybe to what happens to uh, black folks and communities of colors is what, what allows and empowers some of the situations that are going on right now. I mean, everybody can see, uh, you know, George Floyd, how he was killed and what happened there. And I think most people who have some common decency, there are still some people that won't see it for them. I won't say there's no hope, but they're not the audience we're trying to reach. We're trying to reach the people that, which is the vast majority of people that can see this is wrong. Do you think there's any opportunity in this moment uh, for black founders, for black CEOs? I mean, I hear companies throwing out, we're going to do a hundred million here, hundred million there. I can't tell if that's all just to look good in the moment or if there's actually real opportunity for, uh, Black founders, black investors, uh, you know, black small uh, startup companies. What do you think is the 
opportunity in this moment, if any? Yeah, I mean, this is it's it's an interesting question because to your point, I mean, there is there's definitely a, a, a what I call a cultural shift that's occurring. I think that the question that a lot of us have is, okay, this feels a little different than it has in the past, so I can appreciate that. But you know, I'm very skeptical of sort of kind of consistent and, and, and more long term change um, as it relates to kind of tech and, and a lot of what we're seeing. You know, I have very mixed feelings about it. And I'll tell you, I mean, obviously, representation is important to me. Um, we're doing a terrible job here in the Silicon Valley in terms of, you know, particularly black representation, um, black women even more so. Um, but, but you know, the reality is that, that this is not a problem that needs to be solved for any social reason. There is a severe economic disadvantage from not finding these founders. There is a severe strategic disadvantage for not building these teams with more black representation. There's no question. And so you can tell me all day long that, you know, you want to do better and this is for social good and yada, yada, yada. I'm looking at this as just being a missed opportunity, a missed economic opportunity. So whether you're a limited partner in a venture capital firm, a private equity firm, a you know organization that's doing strategic investing or a corporation, if you were not looking to this portion of the population, you were missing something. So I want to say that first and foremost. There is a lot of effort going on, and I don't begrudge it, and I appreciate it, but I often get rubbed the wrong way when it feels like this is some type of uh, social responsibility uh, initiative. Yeah. Forget about that. You know, this is, again, we are missing a significant opportunity from a return on investment to invest in a population which adversity creates grit. It creates entrepreneurs. It creates leaders. So statistically, again, your hit rate will be so much higher if you start working with this population that's faced more adversity, the black population in particular. So venture capital needs to understand that. Now, in terms of the opportunity, look, we should all always look for opportunity, take advantage of opportunity. This moment is definitely creating a lot of attention. I would say if you're a black founder, you know, getting meetings at this point will probably feel easier to you. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't think people write checks because they feel bad. I've seen this happen. I've seen, you know, funds get announced that are supposed to do X, Y, and Z, yet you rarely see them stay true to that mission. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, the checks are going to come because we can build conviction. What we need these folks to do is to actually engage with an open mind to you yeah. know to miss some of the mistakes that you know I've experienced and others have been experiencing so we can get to work here and that's the most important thing for the community which is look there is opportunity it's going to take grit it's going to take determination and you're going to face adversity but guess what good news we face adversity. We face we face worse. I you know I have a hard time when people hear my story and oh my gosh I can't believe you went through that. I'm like you know it's funny because that's probably one of the, like the more tame things. I mean I'm talking about like raising money from venture capital and having some you know issues with bias. I mean you know let's talk about people's you know situations and facing with law enforcement and housing and healthcare. Yeah. I mean forget about it. Right. This is a this is a small problem, but it's also one that I think is so easily fixable. That is why I'm investing my energy in, in really talking talking about it. And I want to talk to you. We'll talk a little more offline in this, but I do want to talk about something that we want to launch at the Disruption Now Summit, which is you're going to thank you for coming. You're going to be there. And um, we want to th figure out a way to uh, not only get more the the uh, accredited investors, the venture capital uh, money, which some uh, there's a lot of efforts being out there, six, four or five ventures, uh, Lightship Capital, some of my friends there. But really figuring out, I think, a way we can build a movement to build a large crowdfunding equity where you don't have to just be accredited investors. There you go. And, and have a central focus on that. That's something that uh, I do want to talk to you about, uh, helping us in advising on that, because that, that's the platform that we are going to build. 
Because I think that is the next step. We we do something like that, and and I, I actually look at it like this. You know, I raised two and a half million dollars for my campaign, and obviously I didn't didn't win that campaign. Uh, but people didn't say, okay, well, you know, give me all my money back. Yeah. It's like at the, at, the, <laughs> at the end of the day, that's an investment in a way, and these are investments, and all of them won't work out. But more of them will work out when we all start putting more of our money collectively towards it. And if there's a focus, I think this moment, as you said, I think you said it well, it's not about social responsibility. At the end of the day, at, at, at the end of the day, it's really about an opportunity to gain more equity. We want equality is the basics. We want equity and equity will help everybody and it will help the investors and people aren't going to give you something just because they feel guilty. You might get an opportunity to go to the door and present a real concept and idea and this is your this is your opportunity. Go to the door, be ready to present because the doors don't always open as uh, that often. When it opens, walk through it. Well, and, and frankly, and a lot of this gets talked about. I mean, so much of this industry is around relationship and network, right? So if you don't come from those circles, you just you're at it you're at a disadvantage. So the fact that there's this sort of focus on bringing these entrepreneurs in for conversations take advantage of it. And, you know, again, there's advantages out there for all types of people. I think this is a moment where there might be an advantage for us to at least get some airtime. Now, again, to the point we both just made, people don't just write checks because they feel bad, right? So you still have to do your work. You better come prepared. And come prepared. And and frankly, there's no other way that you'd want to get a business off the ground anyway. So it's um, going to be good for everybody. Yeah. Same rule still applies. So you have an untraditional path. Uh, well, actually, it's not that untraditional in terms. There's a lot of there's a lot of uh, founders that didn't that didn't complete <laughs> college. Uh, typically, don't and, look like me, but yeah, yeah, but typically don't look like you. But you, <laughs> but you, but but you have the story of not going to college, just going right in. Talk about talk about that, and talk about uh, did that give you any unique advantages? Did it uh, cause you any, I guess, uh, issues just because people tried to question your credentials? Even though, again, that's like standard. Yeah. Operating procedure for everybody else. But for us, it's like, well, where are your credentials? Sometimes that's how I look at people. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's how we've been conditioned. Right. And I think as a community, we, we understand the the you know, the, the merit of education, of, 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 of just self-enrichment. And so we tend to look to those things as just being being the, the kind of measuring stick. We don't know a lot of self-made entrepreneurs typically in, in things like high tech. I mean, obviously, there's self-made entrepreneurs everywhere. But, you know, in terms of just working sort of in the tech industry, um, you know, for me, I mean, I think it, it kind of goes back to like my childhood. I grew up in Richmond here in the East Bay of California, um, you know, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a child of the 80s and, and 90s and, and, and that. And so, you know, when I was about 12 or 13, early 90s um, is when, you know, the, the Internet kind of became a thing. Now, this was not the World Wide Web which is, you know, important for people to understand where you could go to a web browser and type in, right. you know, google.com. No, this was like you were dialing into phone numbers and phone banks and, and message boards. And, and I'm old like enough that. to remember all of that. Yes, you know what I'm talking about, right? Exactly. Yes, I do. And so, um, you know, what was interesting for me and what was exciting for me was not only getting exposure to that world. And I was very fortunate. My, we had a computer in the home that was not very common for anybody, let alone a black family. Right. Um, but, you know, the, the connectivity that that provided always just stimulated me. Like I'm talking to people in Australia. I'm connecting with people all over the world. And then what I found was not only my ability to kind of tap into that world, I could manipulate it. I could build applications. I could, I could build anything. Like there was information was out there. I could learn. There were books I could get. I could just start building. You know, if I wanted to be like an architect, I couldn't exactly just go build a building in my backyard, but I could write software applications all day long. And so that really clicked for me. And then I was just, you know, I was a born hustler. I was always trying to look for ways to to earn money. I was, you know, I was a kid who had like a babysitting business and a dog walking business and, you know, you name it. Right. And so 
not only did I find this this thing that inspired me and I could actually create and it kind of unlocked that 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 energy, but then I looked around and I said, oh, the world's going to pay for this stuff. And I started building websites and I started doing database administration. I just started doing stuff to to frankly, just earn money. And I got a lot of attention for that. And even amongst my peers that were making money in a variety of ways, not always on the on the level, um, would start to recognize too, that like, wow, you're, you're hustling and you're out there doing it and you're doing it with computers. And so that was something that I was always really proud of. And my, my community was always really proud of. Fast forward, 1999, I'm getting ready to graduate high school. And I um, am part of a, a program that that's focused on urban youth and helping them with sort of career development and college development skills, an organization, great organization called Inroads. And that got yeah. me to a, uh, I was in that too. Career fair. You were in Inroads. Oh, well, we yep. can talk about that. Yeah, actually, fantastic. Um, and so at the Inroads Career Fair, which is typically geared towards college students, I was a high school student. Um, I met Genentech, and they were a large pharmaceutical company, and they were going through kind of what we call digital transformation. They were trying to move more applications that were old desktop applications to web applications, and it was something I knew how to do. And um, they were having a hard time not only just finding an intern, but literally hiring anybody to go do this work. And so I came in 18 years old, you know, coming from from Richmond, didn't know a whole lot about corporate environments. And uh, here I am now and I'm getting paid money to work on computers. And they're giving me like, give me a laptop. They're giving me a, a phone right. there, you know, and my mind was blown. You know, I'm just like, this is this has got to be the greatest thing in the world to, 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 to have this privilege, you know. And so that kind of is what got me going. Now, I'll say one final thing, which is. The advantage now that I think I had both with the lack of college, but also just being different, like just being this, this, this young kid of color in this environment where there weren't a lot of people of color, let alone people who were 18 years old. Um, I just, I embraced everything. I mean, you could not give me enough work to do. I couldn't sit in on enough meetings. I couldn't do enough informational interviews. I was just, I was so just enamored in being in that environment. And that was my real advantage. You'd give me an assignment, a coding assignment or, or an application that needed to be written in a month, and I would literally do it in the night. I go home that night, I work all night, and I get it done, and I look for something else to go do. And it was just, it was joy for me. But what I realized as I got older, and I try to tell younger folks, is look, invest that energy. I was 18, that was great. But you know, you come out of college when you're 22. Invest that energy in your career and in yourself, because frankly, hopefully you're just having fun and working. <laughs> and right. so you can just do those two things and it will pay off. And that was for me, the hours that I put in the, just, you know, the, the, the sheer just dedication to what I was doing, it advanced me really quickly. Um, and I didn't even think it was work. I just, again, it was a privilege and it was fun and I was getting paid along the way. So I just, you know, I was, I was blessed <laughs> for right. sure. So speaking about your younger career, what advice would you give to yourself knowing all the knowledge you have now? Uh, it sounds like you would stick to working hard. Um, it sounds like yeah. nothing would change there. But is there any other advice you may give yourself knowing what you know now? And what advice would you ignore? Yeah, <laughs> good question. So I think the two things that I feel like in the, you know, I'll be 40 next year. And so the last like the 10, my thirties where I just, I, you know, I've obviously I've developed, I've developed a lot. I think two things that I've really come to just learn and, and appreciate, um, you know, one of them is you've got to continuously learn. And I don't mean just absorb and be open-minded. I mean, you are out there pursuing knowledge. You're reading books, you're, 
watching lectures, you're looking to people in industry or otherwise that you can really aspire to be and to look up to and just try to absorb as much as possible. I definitely, I didn't do enough of that in my twenties. I was very focused on like, Oh, new programming language or whatever I need to do to kind of do my job. There's so much more knowledge out there that now you mean be I, broader in your knowledge. Be broader. Just yeah. Your... I mean, and, and, and absorb, like, again, seek out information, you know? So like today, I mean, I, I read a lot now about just like organizational leadership. I love reading, you know, case studies and memoirs you know, I just got through Shoe Dog and, you know, about Phil Knight and the Nike story. Like, there's so much great information. And I just tell myself, I'm like, I missed out on like 10 extra years of just consuming this stuff. So that's definitely key. The other thing that I've, I've gotten, you know, much more focused on as I've gotten older, and I wish I would be doing this, and it's harder when you're younger, because we all have a little more uh, <laughs> ego about us. Yeah. But be very, very clear with yourself about where your strengths and weaknesses are. Yes. Really understand them and, and you know, leverage those strengths, try to apply them in, in places, look for opportunities to apply those strengths. But more importantly, know your limitations, know where your weaknesses and, and you can work on those. You can figure out ways to kind of develop. You can engage and get help from other people, um, but you also know how to avoid them, you know? And yes. so learning how to just say, you know what, I'm not really good at this thing. I'm going to make sure that I spend as little time as possible doing that because it's just not, it's not a great application of my skill. And so again, when we're younger, we think we can do anything, right? (laughs) So it's a little bit harder to come with that, that humility that says, look, these are, these are some things I need to work on, or frankly, I'm just not good at. But once you have that awareness, it's like a superpower because now you can leverage your strengths and you can leverage them correctly and you can wield it like a power and you can avoid some of your shortcomings. Um, But self-awareness is definitely the key to that. Yeah, I want to talk a little about your entrepreneurial journey, and um, you. Th- this is not a linear process, I'm sure. I'm sure you have, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure there's been bumps along the road. Can you think of a time when something may have seemed like a failure, um, but then it later set up to be a better opportunity, or that wasn't the right opportunity, and that experience uh, helped develop you into a better entrepreneur or into a better leader? Definitely. I mean, I I think I've been fortunate um, to just, I've had a very enriching career and and a lot of that has been to do with just, I've had some very great support and mentors around me throughout. Um, And then part of it is just, I think how I just tend to look at the world. I mean, look like challenges. I mean, these are all opportunities to, to grow and to learn. And frankly, if you're not being challenged, I always feel that I'm sort of withering away as a person. Right. And this is because I'd say the same way. Exactly. And you know, and I'm, I'm inherently lazy. And so I know that about myself. So what I also find is, look, if you're not pushing and you're not learning, you're probably just coasting. And so that's, you know, something that you've got to definitely look at. Um, So that helps kind of just deal with the ebbs and flows, particularly in entrepreneurism. Um, You know, when I came to LucidWorks, I mean, I, again, I was young, I was 32. I was asked to come in and kind of lead this company through a turnaround. Um, They were doing something before that the investors just wanted to stop, but they wanted to try to pivot it. It's a very difficult thing to do in any circumstance, but, you know, let alone you get this 32-year-old, you know, CEO coming in, has very little operating experience, but has a vision for, for what needs to be done. And, you know, again, I was a little naive in terms of how hard it would be. And so when I came in, I'm like, look, here's the thing that we need to go build. I can see it clearly. I know exactly what we need to go do. And then the reality of trying to move an organization towards that vision, pivot that organization, deal with the baggage and some of the history and some of the drama. And, you know, when I first got in there, I remember I had all this motivation and energy and it just felt like we were just getting hit. We couldn't raise money. So now we're going to run out of money. 
uh, somebody wrote a really negative article about us that was completely uncalled for and frankly not true, but it was just debilitating and it just was such a gut punch to us. Um, we had some and it had a wide reach. I take personnel, very wide reach, right? Venture beat. Um, we had some personnel kind of leave in a huff and create a bunch of drama and things. So, you know, there were moments where you're sitting there just like, I, I feel like I'm in this burning building and I feel hopeless. And, you know, not, not to mention that I had walked away from a job that, you know, I was like employee number two of like 3000 people and I was having a great career and I was making money. And so it wasn't like I had nothing to do at the time. Right. So, you know, that was a moment there. And there was a few moments there where it's just like, I can't win. I, I just, I, I don't know what to do. Now, what we did end up doing, and my wife always pushes me on this. It's like, you know, you hit, you hit the bottom and then it's like, well, where do you go from here? Right? Like, it's not going to, you, you're kind of, you're right. kind of beaten down. I'm not trying to be one of these, like, you know, whatever, give a, give a pep talk, but I'm just like, look, there's a point in which you're just like, it can't really get any worse. So what am I going to do? I'm going to stew in this, or I'm just going to start building. And I think that experience, and I've had to go through, like you said, it's now it's, it feels like it's just, it ebbs and flows, but just knowing that like at any point, there's always a way to, to move forward right now. Look, it doesn't mean there's not gonna be painful and emotional and and overwhelming, but the more overwhelming it is just make the steps smaller, you know? All right, I'm here today, tomorrow. I just got to get over here. You know what I'm saying? And you just, that's a really good point when you're overwhelming, just break it down to small, break it down to something smaller. Um, and it's, and it's, it's, to me, it's like, it's just, it's, it's just how you just continuously move forward. And then once you start to get your rhythm, you can pick up your pace a little bit. And then, you know, you find yourself in a moment where you go, wait, now I'm standing in a valley of a whole bunch of new problems, which sucks. But frankly, remember back when I thought I was like at the end of my rope and I wasn't going to be able to go anymore. I got here. So then that, that motivation of reminding yourself that like, Hey, look, you made it this far. So just keep going one step at a time. You know what I'm saying? So, um, so I think that's, that's really been just kind of the key of, of navigating it. But look, I mean, I will have highs that are really high and lows that are really low. And there's nothing like just being up on that high and letting yourself get comfortable just for a minute. Like, Hey, you know what? It's pretty good up here. And just boom. You know, COVID nineteen hits you, and oh, like man. you know, and the whole world changes. Like, oh my god! The whole world changes, and you're just like, well, shit. What, what am I gonna do now? <laughs> you know, so. so let's talk about Lucid Works. What Lucid Works is, and then talk to me about how this moment is or is not affecting the business, and how you and how you're approaching the COVID nineteen world for the foreseeable future. Yeah. We're, it looks like we're going to be doing this for a while. For a little bit, absolutely. So, um, so we what we build is a uh, it's a search engine, and it's a search engine that companies deploy on their own websites. Um, a lot of large retailers, for instance, companies like REI, companies like AT and T, uh, most of the major home improvement chains, most of the large grocery chains. We control the ex- search experience on their website. Now, search isn't just you type in a keyword and you get back something. It means that we're ranking those results based on your preferences. We're personalizing those results. We allow for things like product recommendations and discovery to occur. So we we use artificial intelligence to determine, hey, people who buy these things might also buy these things or people who tend to like the same things as you often purchase these things over here. We give tools to merchandisers so they can control and promote and do different things around that experience. And so we're controlling those experiences for a number of the top retail brands. Um, We also do it for companies just to help their own internal operations and finding stuff for employees. So large oil and gas companies, large banks like Morgan Stanley. Um, we've been in the business for doing this for about seven years now. Um, we released the product two year, uh, sorry, five years ago. Um, we've grown the business 
quite substantially. And so we're about a $70 million revenue, uh, $70 million a year run rate business. Um, and yeah, we're continuing to kind of just refine those capabilities. I think, you know, my vision for the world is really that, you know, we create engaging, connected experiences that are digital. You know, it's one thing to walk into a store and have, you know, you're at REI, you want to go camping and whether it's your first time camping or you're going to go camp on top of Kilimanjaro, there's somebody at REI who can tell you everything you need to know about the boots, about the material, about the various equipment that you need. That's the experience. That's why you go to REI rather than just go to Amazon and buy something cheap. Well, now in this new world, obviously we need to, those brands need to carry those experiences into those digital channels. And so we really help them craft that. And that's, that's part of our mission. Um, when you think about COVID, it's interesting, you know, on one hand, you'd say, wait, you guys are an e-com provider. This must be great for you. And the reality is, you know, in, in some cases it, it is right. Customers are scrambling now to figure out their digital strategies. So much of retail still relied on that brick and mortar experience. Yeah. yeah they all had websites, but were they good? Um, not necessarily. No. So, a ton of use Wix and call it a day. Thank you. There you go. Right. And and then you can't find anything and it's not personal. And like, you seem like every time I just bought this thing, why aren't you like, why don't you know what version I had? You know, I mean, there's so many things that create these frustrating experiences. And by the way, why they're frustrating? Because we know what's possible. We've been on Amazon. We've been on Facebook. We've been on Netflix. So why is it when I go to shop on your site, I, it, it breaks down. I feel like I'm back in 1999. Right. Um, and forget about it. When I come into work and I try to use one of those applications, I feel like I'm in 1989. Right. And so that, that understanding is what's creating a lot more demand for the kind of stuff that we do. Um, so on one hand, again, we're, we're engaging customers, we're supporting them. You know, some of our retail customers have seen, you know, black Friday is always the big event in retail, right. Where you're going to get the most traffic. You're going to have the most deals, um, and they're seeing Black Friday like traffic just sustaining through March, April, into May, even. Um, now, some of that slowed down because we all went home. We bought a new exercise bike. We bought a new mixer. We, you know, we 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 bought some lawn furniture for the backyard because we're not going on any vacation anytime soon, right? Um, so there was a big spike in spend, and then that's kind of tapered off. Clearly, consumer spend is 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 down. So what that does for our business is it means a number of our customers are cautious. So they're not pushing big initiatives forward. They're not making major investments. They're being very incremental in the things that they're doing. So we've had to adjust our business with an expectation of, look, the customers that we serve are in a good position and they renew well. And, you know, we can just continue to focus on their success and invest in their success. And we're going to let the market kind of determine when it's ready to pick back up again. But most importantly, we are going to position our business so we can withstand any any market events that occur. And so that means that we, you know, we look at expenses, we cut costs, we try to reduce the overall budget and just ensure that we're preserving as much cash as possible. So if this goes on for two, three years, we don't, you know, we don't have to worry about running out of money or doing layoffs or, or anything like that. So we're trying right. to look down the road and assume the worst. And then hopefully we all just find out that we overreacted <laughs> and we get back that's, to normal that, sooner that, that's rather the than hope. later. That's the hope, but there probably even even when that happens, there will probably be a delay. It'll take time. It'll take time because people are gonna. So part of what I do, I have a company that that, that does kind of aligns with what you do, but doesn't do the AI version. But we do research, data, and marketing, mm, and we yeah. did a, we've done a lot of research. And as you said in February, we were looking at this. People were taking this seriously, and then by March, it was done. I mean, they were. Democrats, Republicans, anybody across the board, people, no matter what they were telling you, the pollsters, no. uh, the, what we saw is people are taking this seriously. And even when uh, things get back to normal or people say 
you know, the governor say it's OK, even when the healthcare experts say it's OK, there's going to be a lag in people's, uh, I guess, response They're to get back to normal. Exactly. And the question is, what is it going to what does normal look like? Do we actually change? Does does human behavior change because we've set in so so much? Do we do more virtual events now? Do does, do these things change? And how do you how do you position yourself to be ready for that as a business? Uh, speaking about that, when you talk about your business with AI. You, I heard a lecture from you and you, you talked about the need to make AI more connected to the human experience and, and think and have more empathy and our, our understanding for the human experience. What do you mean by that? So so a really good way to, to think about AI being non-experiential is Amazon. Amazon's very effective and it's very efficient. They are so, effective. you know, we, yeah. <laughs> we can spend money. In fact, you know, look, just open up the homepage and you're going to start shopping, right? It's, it's no secret that they've, they've figured this out. But what they really lack from an Amazon perspective is there's no context. There's no human level experience to it. And, and we see it, right? I mean, how many times right. if go, you know, shopping for a lawnmower and you keep getting recommended running shoes and, and other things, right? And I had a brand tell me one time, a clothing brand, they said, you know, the problem with Amazon is Amazon has no taste. And so the difference between what machine learning gets deployed in, in the sense of an Amazon and kind of what we do is Amazon's all about machine learning decision making. I'm going to sell you this. I'm going to promote you that. There's no one there to really decide, does this make sense? If I'm out there mowing the lawn, why do I need to shop for running shoes right now? Right. Human beings have that in- intuition. So what I talk about is, look, AI should not be a decision engine because, frankly, it's, it, it can't make a good decision. It's a computer. It's not a person. But right. what AI can do is we can assist the human in making more informed decisions. So for instance, what we do with one of our products, we call it the predictive merchandiser, is we will tell a merchandiser, if you're looking at running shoes, these are the top selling running shoes um, by brand, by color, whatever, you know, we're monitoring all of that stuff. We use our machine learning to make a recommendation to say, hey, look, if someone's looking for running shoes, we really think that these Nikes are the way to go. But we surface that to a merchandiser who goes, you know what? Yeah, the Nikes are cool, but man, everybody's talking about these new Adidas and we're running a campaign over here. I'm going to actually promote, I'm going to override the AI to tell it what I want it to go do. That's a human being who understands the context. Remember that person at REI who could tell us how to plan for our first camping trip? Right. It's the same idea. So in order for AI to be effective, it has got to have more human training, more human kind of in the middle. Now, that's being effective. The second part is biases. So think about language. So much of what we do to train AI is we look to the way people are talking. We look to the way they're talking on the internet. We look at the way they're talking on Twitter. And we use those conversations to inform the way that chatbots and artificial intelligence should behave. Have you ever read Twitter? <laughs> Have you ever read <laughs> the comment section of a news site? And you're going to tell me this is like, it's like if you had a child, a baby. It's the bottom of the barrel of the earth sometimes of wanna, comments and people. So AI is like a, it's like a, it's like a child, right? It's, 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 a, it's a brain that's just completely absorbable and, 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 and permutable. And, and we're telling this child that we want you to learn to speak English and, and actually not even speak English. We want you to be like a conversing member of society, but you're going to go learn everything on Twitter right. <laughs> and the way people talk on Twitter, the way they communicate, the way they relate uh, sentiment to things like race, yes. to things like sex. And then we wonder why we have problems like the court, the chatbot that, you know, Microsoft put out that was like racist. 
I mean, because it's Why learning. It? Well, it's learning a lot of the biases that we have, and it's just re-implementing them. Uh, Thank you. Now, let me ask you a question. Okay. Do you think you and I would be surprised by the outcome of a racist chatbot that was what was trained? Not on at all. Hell no. <laughs> the people at Microsoft were. Who do you think was in that room making those decisions? Was anybody like you or I sitting in that room? Probably not. That's my guess. So again, you could tell me that this is wrong, that it's socially unjust. Forget about all that. You just failed. You just spent millions and millions of dollars on an initiative and it's a complete failure and it's a PR disaster. And it's because you didn't have any black people in the room. There, hey, hey, there you there go. There you go. There you go. Right there. there. Go. We can talk about economics all day. Yeah. And so I think the, the, the challenge with that is they found so much success. When I say they, the big tech world, I'm, I'm going to take Facebook as my main example here. And I've read a lot on Mark Zuckerberg and his feelings and how he's approached this. Um, one of the books I think is called, um, uh, it's about big data. I think everybody lies. That's what it's called. Mm, everybody okay, lies. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. It's a great book. And it, it really, it, talks about the 2016 election, how all the polls got things wrong. And I think the challenge is, you know, human beings aren't as self-aware as they should be either. You know, and, you know, you you mentioned the unconscious bias. That's real. And you know, so people wouldn't say who they were voting for in 2016 because they were kind of ashamed right. of who, so who they were voting for. Um, and so but now so people were but but you can tell by their data where they were leaning towards. And I think I know Facebook has saw an opportunity. Mark Zuckerberg talks about, I mean, he talks about this or hints around this. He's the voyeuristic nature of how human beings are, how we like to sometimes go after each other. We have aspirational things too, but I think he's seen, and so far social media has seen that they can make more money, not based upon what people say they want to see, but what they actually want to see. Yes. And so how do you, how do you, how do you balance that out? Because I, I see where you're coming from and I love it. Yeah. But I also think like, okay, there's clearly a market for what we don't admit we want to see, but we clearly want to see it. There's no question. I mean, I, I, I think there's, well, look, I mean, first off, there's, these aren't just one problem, right? So like right. The, the Microsoft example, you know, you're putting out a, a chatbot into the general population that's meant to answer questions and be useful and, and frankly, be an important business driver. Right. And so the fact that the, you know, they allowed so much bias to occur and weren't thinking about that ahead of time is just a failed business initiative. So yes. that, that, you know, look, that hurts you more than it hurt anybody else. Absolutely. Facebook is different because Facebook is now like it's a utility, right? It's gone just, it's become so yeah. pervasive in the way we live that we have to kind of treat it and think about it differently. And to your point, we might decide to do things with our utilities that others may not find to be very tasteful. It's sort of my prerogative to read hate speech. It's my prerogative to converse about violence and, you know, these, right. these types of things. And look, I think of, of all the people and, and just, you know, where I can empathize, and this might sound funny, is I empathize. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg's got the hardest job in the world. Because on one hand, first off, he's a creator. And I just I have all the admiration and respect for that because it's just building is just it's what makes us human. Um, but at the same time, the, the level of responsibility in terms of the impact of what that platform can have. Yeah. So we can talk about where he maybe can do things differently or better. But, but the thing I have a hard time believing is that somebody else can just drop in and get it right. No, I, so, that, that, that's kind of my point. So this I'm, thing is like, how do we how do you uh, do it? How do you do this? And. I love a term you said, you know, artificial intelligence. You don't like to view it that way. It's really augmented intelligence. Augmented intelligence, right. And, now, and, and, yeah. But this is hard. It's one thing to augment intelligence when I'm trying to help somebody sell running shoes. 
right? I, look, it's my, again, I'm, right. I'm, I'm the company. I can decide how I want to augment that intelligence. If I'm right, I make more money. If I'm wrong, I don't. It's kind of on me. It's Now, when we're talking about manipulating opinion, when we're talking about um, spreading false information, yes. this is where it becomes such a blurred area. And actually, frankly, I don't have an answer because, look, on the one hand, you could say, well, it's easy. Just have people fact checking. But now we get back into bias. Yeah. I have bias. People don't you believe bias. facts. People don't believe facts. What's an interpretation of a fact? You and I have a, a, a certain interpretation of what's going on in the world as it relates to police violence compared to other people. We both think we we understand the facts, right? So it's very it's a very slippery slope, and it's a very dangerous game when we start to kind of use our our opinions on what is right and what is wrong. Agreed. Um, so that is clearly a problem. But I guess the cha- the challenge goes back to what you said, and I don't have the answer either. But uh, you're one of the smartest people I know on this, so I'm just putting it out there that you know artificial intelligence is also, I think, accelerating the issues that we internally no have. Question. It's accelerating but, the pre-existing conditions of the human condition that we don't want to accelerate. Yeah. So that's my that's my how do we and this is the question we may not be able to answer now, but I think there needs to be some thought process into this. How do we use artificial intelligence to help us rise to our higher selves and not just our not most just bring forward? That's a really that's a really interesting and important perspective. And I'll tell you, like machine learning and artificial intelligence at its most base form is just taking like a human operation and accelerating it. Right. So let's say I'm going to have you go look at a million pictures and tell me which one has a red hammer in it. Right. You could do that. It's going to take you a while. Well, if I train a computer to do it, it can just blast through it. So, again, it's an extension of kind of of us. And so to your point, it can exasperate problems. So there's there's two things on that. I mean, one thing that I will say is when it back to sort of the Facebook examples, I get that how you police these these types of situations is hard. Whose content do you allow? Whose do you not? But there is one thing that Facebook can make a decision on, and they have all the rights in the world and no one can question them. Where do they go to monetize? Are they taking, to your point, that thread, and are they the ones pulling on it because they see an opportunity? They can use their own discipline to determine that, you know what, we're going to stop this particular practice, even though it's good for business, it's good for eyeballs, it's good for traffic, because it perpetuates a negative behavior without having to judge whether the individual post or piece of content, they know where things are being put in by state actors externally. They know when things are being blatantly dishonest, but are spreading at a rate that's incredibly high. They know what they do to place those things that are spreading in terms of the algorithm and the ranking. You can control all that. There's no bias in doing that. That's just the way you think about your business. Where I do think they have a a problem or a challenge is they can't determine what you Rob Richardson are allowed to determine his truth. That's dangerous, right? Trying to actually monitor you. So I do, again, there's more responsibility. How we turn AI into good, let's be very clear. AI is Because I want to talk about that, how we turn AI into good. And as I let you transition into this, into your answer, because keep going there. I I do believe the Facebook, Facebook mostly, but there's some other uh, data and tech companies too that have made people question, uh, that have made people suspicious of AI, that has people nervous. Uh, about AI. And I think that is dangerous because I, I do believe we need to keep moving and keep innovating. But if there's not trust built in and, and if there's a natural reaction from the public to think everything is about controlling their thoughts or it's just about eliminating yeah. their jobs, uh, it becomes harder for us to innovate and move forward as a society. So I do think building up trust in AI, 
is really important. So and how AI can be good. So you were you were going yeah, there, and that's an easier one to be honest, because 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 you know I'll come back to the AI for good, but just on that, and that's a really important point. Um, trust relates, in my opinion, entirely to privacy. And where people start to get really turned off, where they start to get really nervous is when they start to recognize that my information is being used kind of without my knowledge, but then it's showing up on an ad. It's showing up here. I swear I was having a conversation with my wife and the next day I started seeing Facebook ads for it, you know? Um, the other day I went into a store and I just, you know, I was shopping and, you know, wanted like I was hungry, right? There's a little like this jerky thing. I've never seen it before. I just grabbed it because it was there and it looked good or whatever. And that night I started getting ads on Facebook for that jerky and it freaked me out. I'm, I'm in the industry, right? And I know these things. So I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. How the hell? And then what I realized is I use Google Pay yep. at, the, at the grocery store. And so I'm talking like within an hour. I'm getting served up ads on something that I just did physically in person. That's creepy. So here's what I think is going to happen on the creep factor is we're going to experience a revolution around privacy. And it's going to focus primarily on the idea that privacy is a commodity. We are exchanging it for goods and services. Now, look, I think most of us today are not naive to the fact that Googles and Facebooks and these things are free because they're using our data. Yeah. We think of them as ad machines. So that part is pretty well understood. What we don't understand is what exactly am I sharing and what are you doing with it? We don't have and informed consent. We don't have informed consent. And the next piece of informed consent is, okay, I hear you, but you know what? I don't want my face scanned. How much is my face worth to you? 25 bucks a year? Done. Here you go, Facebook. I will pay $25 a year to continue to use your service. But instead of trading you this piece of my privacy, I'm just going to give you money. Because again, these things are all a commodity. Right. Now, today, nobody really understands the value. So nobody wants to go down this path because they're still sitting here. I'm just hoarding and hoarding data because I think one day I'm going to have like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to win. This is the new arms race, right? But right. we as consumers need to demand transparency. Then we need to demand optionality which says, look, you can do whatever you want. It's your service. I'm the one using it. But you need to show me a full disclosure of where all my information is going, and I should have the ability to opt out. Now, if I opt out, let's say I turn off facial recognition on Facebook. Facebook goes, okay, that's cool. Guess what? You can't upload photos anymore. Okay. We're, again, we're making an exchange, right? So this is a crucial And I think most piece. people, if they will still probably disclose as long as they're informed about what's being disclosed. This is what I think people most need. people probably will. Make the decision. Hey, you know what? Yeah. I'm good. I don't want to pay $100 or I want to use the photo thing. It's worth it. Again, it's a commodity. We're making, we're trading. You know what I'm saying? Today, it's very one-sided because we're trading, but we have no idea. There's no, there's no table that tells us the value. I have no idea whether I just handed you, maybe I'm paying a million dollars a year for Facebook. I don't know. <laughs> you know, so that that is definitely key. And I think when you do that, you start to build that trust. Now, you talked about the next piece of this, which is like jobs and, and you know, just these other more insidious things. Uh, law enforcement. I mean, there's a lot of oh, conversations. Yeah, law enforcement, definitely. Facial recognition. I mean, it's already being used in protests right now. There you go. People. So that is that is definitely a concern. But I do think people also need to understand how many great things have happened as a result of, of this technology as well. And, and I also tell black people this. I mean, this is the fact is. We have to participate in some level, I think, of the of the facial recognition because machines learn through experience. So if we're yeah. they don't see us, 
they don't understand it. So yeah. like we, and, and, and it's, it's not it's like happening. we're not going to use technology. No, exactly. No, no. And that's, that's a really good point. And this goes back to, again, the way these models get trained and, you know, the, the whole image. We still need black people in to go over to that, to, to your greater point. Yeah. But we need to participate in the process too it, and, it and know that it doesn't help. You can't uh, opt out. You can't opt point. out. No, no, no. And we need to do a better job. Um, I, I laugh and this is probably maybe going to sound controversial, but the way image recognition works, it is actually harder with a darker complexion because there's less reflection, right? So, you know, a computer doesn't look at you and understand all the nuance of what makes you, you. A computer is actually measuring how the light's bouncing, the shadows. If I see two shadows, I know kind of how large yeah. your nose is. I can tell you have hair, you don't have hair. I actually like, had Brian Burkeen. You know Brian Burkeen? Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had him, I had him on the show. He, he went through that. It's in yeah, detail it, how it's, it's got the pale, the pale male it's good at, but it's not good at anything else. No, it is, it, this is very true. And so it's, it's frustrating. Now, again, the companies are not necessarily responsible for the technology still being developed, but why you put something out as a, cons a consumer product that doesn't work for black people is just, Correct. it's, it's just, again, who was and in the room? Especially in law enforcement. I'm just saying, come on. And so, you know, this is where, again, not having inclusive voices in the room making these decisions is how these mistakes occur. First and no, foremost, absolutely. like, again, you could avoid so much of this by just having a more informed process. And so this is what people, and again, in, in terms of AI, look, we talk about all the terrible things that can happen in arrest in this. There's also just simple things like language. You know, like, let's just say, for instance, you're a retailer shoot, you're a retail shop and, you know, I want to go shop for some sneakers and, you know, you've got tennis shoes and you've got this and you've got that. Well, look, if I live in the Northeast, like I buy sneakers, man, like that's what I wear. I don't know what a tennis shoe is. Right. So right there, if you don't adapt to that language for that, that's regional, you miss a sale. Absolutely. So again, like having broader, inclusive kind of involvement in these things is it's just better for everybody, um, let alone just the right thing to do. But again, I, I've, I've given up on talking about the right thing to do. I'm just going to talk yeah. about pure economics because that is like a language that everybody yeah, because Yeah, is that pure economics? Because doing the right thing can lead to more money. Let's just get it. There you go. Yeah, exactly. Look, if you don't want to think this is, you know, you don't think diversity inclusion is important because it doesn't mean anything to you. Well, guess what? It is statistically proven that you have a higher performing team. So yep. let that be your motivation. <laughs> exactly. And I, and I love the part about technology connecting and making sure that your, your company is having empathy and understanding for the end user and those who use who actually use the product. Let me get to some final uh, rapid questions as we as we uh, wrap up here. So what, what's an important truth you have that few people might agree with you on? Oh, wow. Um, an important truth that few people might agree with me on. Um, I mean, I, I, I go back to like just just curiosity being probably the, the most important trait that I think as an individual that you can have. I think just that open-mindedness, that willingness to just learn and ask questions and assume that, you know, everything is a teacher. I could meet the most racist, biased, awful person in the world, but if I'm going to sit in a train car with them for, you know, six hours, I might as well turn that into an experience to try to understand Absolutely. what makes them who they are, you know? And so that is really important. And I think, you know, the, the, the more controversial side might be to apply it in that train car scenario. You know, I had somebody um, uh, say to me one time in this, in this actually this seminar, and it was again, a very controversial thing, but you know, and he was a Jewish guy, which makes this even more, more kind of interesting, but he's like, you know, I'd like to forgive and have an objective conversation with Hitler, an open-minded, curious, because I want to really understand, like that is such a foreign concept to me to wow. be that just, just evil that, it, I almost like part of me is like fascinated. Like I want to sit and I want to engage. And so 
being able to like look at somebody like that, to look at just something that is just pure, just hatred and vile and say, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to see what this person's really about. I'm going to engage them. Like I actually agree on that. Uh, Here's the reason though, because I think to add to that point, a lot people are saying, well, okay, Hitler did that because he was evil. He, clearly he was evil. Uh, and then, he, then, but, but a whole nation followed him. There you so, go. There's something there. There's so something is it, there. was it, was it, was it something unique to all the people in Germany or is it in all the human condition? And we need to understand how they, how that happened to make sure and that what we are he did in particular to go unlock that. Right. Correct. Again, it's easy to be like, no, I hate that guy. I would never even step for No, of course that's like our natural human reaction. Cause we're, we're, we're mostly decent people. But again, if you can hack your brain to go, I'm going to turn Hitler into a teacher and I'm going to try to understand. It's a really gross thing to think about. But again, it, to me that that's, that's like, that's a mastery of that curiosity, right? That I will let every preconceived notion and, and emotion and, and opinion dissipate and I will be purely in open-minded sort of fact absorption. Like, again, it takes a mastery. I can't say that I could do that. I think we all have these moments, but there's an opportunity for all of us to just completely let our guard down and completely absorb the world around us. And I think it'll make us just richer human beings, ultimately. I I completely agree. You have a, a committee of three, living or dead, that can be your advisors in business and or life. Who would those three people be and why? Oh, man. Um, so let's um, let's back it up. So I think, you know, going a little more historical, um, I find Malcolm X to be one of the most fascinating characters. And it's actually not for the reasons why I think a lot of people are attracted to just his words and his energy. His transformation multiple times throughout his life is again, back to that curiosity. Do you think Red back in the, you know, the early parts of his life thought he was going to become who he became, right? And then even then when he was in the nation and kind of was leading that effort, and then as he evolved through the trip to Africa, like that level of, 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 of self-awareness and evolution to me is, yeah. is amazing. And I think that the world and, and, and the universe in particular, when somebody has that much charisma and ability and learning and, and mind expansion, um, they tend to live a shorter life. I feel like they just, they accelerate through life so quickly. And I think that's yeah. what I find so fascinating. I think Tupac is a very similar character in the sense that Agreed. he was a very transformed, his entire life was I reinvented. I love your committee here. Um, Malcolm and yeah. Tupac. <laughs> Malcolm and Tupac, you know, and I, and again, I, I just, it, it, it's just back to that, that theme of just sort of that transformation. You know, I could say that I, I, I find Malcolm X's words inspiring. I, I love Tupac's music, but it, to me, it's actually not about the artist or the speaker or the leader. It's really about that journey that I find to be just, just fascinating. Um, and then, you know, I think in, in kind of a more sort of modern setting, it's funny. I, um, I, cause I read a lot. I tend to gravitate towards just different leaders based on what I'm dealing with. You know, I think Tony Shea from, from Zappos is a fascinating leader. The way he thinks about culture, the way he defined his company, a shoe company as a customer service company. And that was the mission. That was the goal. Let's provide the best customer service. So if we're selling shoes or we launch an airline, it doesn't matter. Zappos will be all about customer service. That's so powerful. Um, I look at like the story of Phil Knight. Oh my God. I just read that book. So it's a little top of mind, but like, my goodness, I mean, you talk about just being on the rope and, and, and just having the most awkward, I mean, he had a guy in a wheelchair, he had a guy that was 300 pounds. I mean, this is who right. built Nike, you know what I'm saying? So yeah. I know I gave more than three, but I just, you know, those first two no, to me helpful. are just such, 
iconic and, and just amazing individuals for their transformation. And then just look for people in industry that, you know, can give me some advice <laughs> would be, would be my committee there, you know, and the industry no, person would, would rotate depending on kind of what I was dealing with at the time. That's so, a really, really yeah. good committee. Final question here. You have a, a, a billboard, a Google ad that it's a saying or it's a, or, or displays your belief. What would that say and why? Fortune favors the bold. Um, you know, I just, you got to take risks in life. You, you, you got to have courage. Um, you know, I just, I don't think anybody has achieved anything, you know, notable, um, ever by just, just, just kind of being timid and, 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 and just sort of being, being reactive. You know, you got to put yourself out there. Um, you got to make big bets and make big decisions if you want big outcomes. Look, everybody, not everybody, yep is in the same mode of where right. they want to get to. But if you want a big outcome, you got to, you got to take big steps. It doesn't just happen by just playing it safe. So be bold. Absolutely. We have Robert Greene on the show, best-selling author of the 48 Laws of Power. I think one of the laws is he talks about being bold. He said, uh, everybody admires the bold. Nobody admires the weak. There you go. There you go. There <laughs> you go. A, that's that's just perfect, <laughs> perfect yeah. way. I should go check that out, actually. Yeah, Will Hayes, Lucid Works. I appreciated having you on the show. Appreciate it. It was great content. 